Praise the Lord. Well, let's continue our study in the Gospel of Mark. We are, this is our fourth week. Now, we ended last week with the conclusion of the first chapter. Jesus is doing a lot of miracles, healings, driving out demons. We ended that chapter where he healed a leper. And we talked about the power of physical touch. Now we pick it up at the beginning of chapter 2. Before we do that, let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And we pray that your word comes across true, rightly divided. If your word is true and it's rightly divided, it will touch our lives. And we pray that you would do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So Mark chapter 2, verse 1 says, Several days later, Jesus returned to Capernaum, and the news of his arrival spread quickly through the town. Now this next section, basically chapters 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, is a time where Jesus kind of now goes on the offense. One one commentator calls this time a, a conflict with religious authorities. Now there are several accounts here. They're not all in chronological order, but they're kind of grouped together as one main theme. These happen at different points, but Mark puts them together as one section. And what, this is the section where he's going to confront the religious leaders by doing things where they could see him. In other words, he's now going to do it in public and the religious leaders are going to see him. Now, I'm, I'm not what they call a heresy hunter. How many know what they are? A heretic hunter. Trying to find wrong preaching here, there, and everywhere. But we do have to be careful about what we listen to. There's some stuff floating around now from places that you would think are reliable, but as you read some of the books they write and some of the things they teach, you gotta be careful about what is being taught because not everything they're teaching is biblical. And so God doesn't call us to be that type of person, but God does call us to be careful and to call out things that are maybe affecting other people, especially when those people are in high positions of authority and power and prominence. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing here. He's doing all these things in front of the religious leaders of that time because he's calling them out. He's kind of putting them on notice, wanting them to respond. And he would confront them by doing things kind of in their face to see what they would do. You know, back in Daniel, back when uh, they, you know, Nebuchadnezzar says, like, nobody praying, nobody praying to God other than me. So what did Daniel do? Daniel could have stayed in his house with the windows shut and prayed. But he didn't. He flung open the windows and he prayed so everybody could see him. And there's sometimes we have to take a stand publicly even though everyone is against us, even though we know what the reaction is going to be. And Jesus did that exact thing. He called out people because of what they were doing to others. And the main point was for Jesus, he wasn't calling out individuals. Those are the people he wanted to hang out with. He was calling out the people who were the leaders of the community, people that others would look to for authority. And if they're doing it wrong, then the people following them are doing it wrong. So he's trying to call out the leadership first so that other people would see their hypocrisy. So instead of the miracles being the center of everything, it would be the forgiveness and repentance that would be the forefront of the messages. Up until now, when he's doing all these miracles, Everyone's cool with that, right? No one's calling him out. But now he starts saying, what? Your sins are forgiven. There's forgiveness in Christ. Up until now, he had been going through Galilee. And now he's going back to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was kind of his base of operations. 
Most people think that's where Peter lived, which is where Jesus kind of hung out a lot at Peter's house. Now, because of people not listening and talking about Jesus, you know, out of turn, they're saying all these things. Jesus says, look, don't tell anybody yet. Well, they're telling any, everybody, and now a crowd's gathering. He still has a crowd following him, clamoring for a miracle or a healing. And you wonder, you wonder how the news traveled so fast back there. You know, what's, what did Mark Twain say? Uh, a lie goes around the world before truth gets its shoes on. How often do things spread? And you wonder how God's, this information got out so fastly or so fast. Not only did the news arrive that he, that he arrived spread, it appears that news of his miracles were already there. And so what happened? All the people were excited to see him, right? They all come out to see him. Verse two says, soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there wasn't room for one more person, not even outside the door. So he gets back from traveling, again, probably tired. And again, we probably say this is, most people think this is Peter and Andrew's house. Just like before, so many people came and he couldn't get a moment's rest. Even at a friend's house, when you should expect some privacy or at least time away from the crowds, Jesus was inundated. But what did he do? Verse two, it says, and he preached the word to them. Now, if you remember last week, he, just, he told his disciples that that was why he was called. Mark 1.38 says, Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. Now, we're praying for revival to happen. We believe it's gonna happen. Revive in us first and then revive in the church. Miracles are a minuscule part of revival. Miracles are used to get people's attention to come. If we're all about the miracles, then we're missing why they're here. We want God to move in our midst. And people will see those miracles and they will come. And just like Jesus, most of them didn't, they just, they left once the, mir once the miracles were done, they kind of left. But you still had a remnant that did believe. They got saved through the, through the miracles. They got their life committed to Christ because of the miracles. The same with worship. God can use any of those things to get people's attention, but it's not through those things that God saves. God saves through his word. And we believe that when God's word is preached and the power of the gospel is here, not in the preacher, but in the power of the word, Romans 1.16, I think, to say, I believe the, power, the gospel has the power of salvation. So it's the gospel that saves people. It's the miracles that get them in to hear the word. So Jesus was all about saving people. And if he had to use miracles to do it, that's great. But we're not about, we believe him. We believe God's gonna do it. But that's not all we're believing for. The healings were due to Jesus' compassion. But temporary healings without salvation is only a quick fix, right? Because in the end, it doesn't really matter. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but eventually Lazarus died again. So healings are only a temporary thing. I, I think of the analogy again with the car. You're stuck in the middle of the desert. Your car runs out of gas. And someone gives you this much gas. And you're a thousand miles from anywhere. Is that really going to help? It may get you 100 yards down the road, but it's not going to really help. That's what a miracle is without salvation. It's great for the time being. It's good that God does it here. But if you're not saved because of that miracle, it doesn't really help you. Because at the end of your life, you need to have Christ. 
So God uses those to get people's attention. Healings without salvation will get you through this life, but salvation gets you to eternity. Verse three says, four men carrying a were carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. Now look at the guys that were carrying his, their friend. They were concerned about him. They cared about him. Now we assume this guy wanted to be carried there. Maybe he didn't, but I'm sure, I'm sure he did. Whether he did or not, it didn't matter. The friends brought him to Jesus because they cared about him. They wanted him to be healed. Which begs the question, how concerned are we about our friends? The old story that we've probably heard a thousand times, two friends know each other all their life. They both die. One gets to heaven, one doesn't. And the friend who doesn't says, you knew about this all the time and you didn't tell me. Do people think that we're, or people know we're Christians? Have we shared the truth with them? If we go about life and we never tell them about Jesus, can you really say that you're a true friend? They may not want to hear it at the moment, but the minute they get saved, they're going to be thankful that you did. You do it because you care for them. The second characteristics of these guys is they had the faith to believe that Jesus could and would heal their friend. When you invite someone to church, you, you talk to someone, do you really believe that God wants to save them? I've had this question asked of me. Are you embarrassed to bring someone to church because of what might happen in church? I came from a Catholic background. My first time in a real church was a Pentecostal church, and I thought y'all were crazy. It was just, but she wasn't, in, she wasn't embarrassed to invite me. Because no matter what happens, God's still there. It may be totally weird to them. And if you're embarrassed to invite someone because you think something strange is gonna happen, maybe that's something strange that God's gonna use. These guys believed that Jesus was gonna heal this guy. Or do you think, well, I can't talk to them because it, it, they don't listen to me, that's never gonna work. The truth is God wants to save people more than you do. God wants them saved more than you do. Another thing is they just didn't, quote, pray about it. Dude, I know you're sick, let's just pray here, maybe Jesus will come over and heal you. No, they may have prayed about it, doesn't say, but they took him to Jesus. It's one thing to pray about something, but you've got to eventually ask them. How many have been ever been in a sales position selling something? What's the one thing they say? Ask for the order. Close the sale, right? You can tell them all the great things about Jesus and all the things they want to hear, but you've got to come to the point where you say, do you want to accept it? Because unless you ask them the question, they're going to not do anything. You have to come to the point where you say, I've told you everything about Jesus. Do you want to accept him? There's nothing wrong with prayer, but there's times when you actually have to do something. I, I remember one preacher saying once that uh, in response to the, to the statement, well, I'm just going to pray and live a holy life before them and let God do the work. Well, I mean, that's, that's partially good. You live a life before them. 
But the preacher's response is, your life has to be so holy that they're going to fall down at your feet and say, what do you have? You actually have to tell them why you're holy. You actually have to tell them why you're living the way you live. You have to actually bring it out in conversation because they're not going to know it unless you tell them. And these guys were bringing this guy to Jesus whether he wanted to or not because they knew he could do something. And if we're praying for someone and we talk to someone, we have to believe that God's going to heal them and God's going to save them. If we don't, if we don't believe that, then they're never going to believe it. The number two thing in selling, you have to believe in your product. If you don't believe your product's going to work, it's going to come across in your selling position. We believe in our product. And we have to come across as believing in that product. Number three for these guys, they work together to accomplish one goal. Now, he probably needed all four of these guys to carry him. Maybe three but it probably wouldn't have worked with one or two guys carrying this, this invalid. It took all of them to accomplish one thing. And that's, that's a small example of church work. It takes, it, one or two or three people can't do everything. It requires everyone to accomplish God's work. If it were only me, there'd be no kids ministry, there'd be no young adult ministry, no youth ministry, if it was just Anna, and that'd probably be all that stuff, but if it's just one person, you can't do everything. Even when Moses was trying to do everything, his father-in-law said, dude, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> you need to get help. God's work requires the involvement of everyone to get it accomplished. So now we come to verse four. It says, they couldn't get to Jesus through the crowd, so they dug through the clay roof above his head. Then they lowered the sick man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. And these, these roofs were flat, covered with thatch and, and dried mud. It probably didn't take a whole lot of effort to dig through that. But as they're digging through it, I never thought about this, but it's probably raining dirt on the guys below them. So if they're right, like right above Jesus, he's getting showered with dirt and thatch. And so all the people in the room are probably looking up like, what's going on up there? Imagine if everyone stopped looking and they looked up and they got a face full of dirt. They all probably stopped what they were doing and looked up to see, what, what's this guy doing? Why is he being lowered here? Notice the crowds didn't say, hey, dude, it's too crowded, come back later. At the first sign of hardship, these four friends did not stop. They found a way to make it work. How many of us stop at a, at a roadblock and think, well, there's no other way around it. I guess I got to sit here all day long. Or do we really try to figure out a way around this traffic jam to get where we want to go? Just because one thing doesn't work doesn't mean you can't try something else. They couldn't get in through the crowds with too many people outside. Let's go through the roof. Probably wasn't a comfortable thing to do and probably was difficult carrying this guy up to the roof of the house and digging through the house was a dirty job. But they knew that all of their effort would be paid off. How many know that what happens on Sunday just doesn't happen on Sunday? It takes all week getting ready for Sunday. It takes all week to prepare music, worship, singing, words, all the scheduling that goes out, people who's scheduled to be here and there and everywhere. 
Everything revolves around what God wants to do on one particular day. If we didn't do, if we found a way to stop that, oh, it's too difficult, I can't do that, then it wouldn't happen. Verse five says, seeing their faith, Jesus says to the paralyzed man, my son, your sins are forgiving. Now notice, he doesn't heal this guy right away. The guy came for healing, but he doesn't heal him. Why focus on this guy's sin? Well, I looked this up, a lot of commentators believe that this guy's particular illness was caused directly by something he did that was sinful. Not sure what it was. But the point is there are some illnesses and hardships that are a result of something that we did or didn't do. Not all, but some. If you're an alcoholic and you get liver disease, the illness was caused by your lifestyle. If you smoke like a chimney, you get lung cancer, sickness caused by your lifestyle. Now some commentators take the approach that an illness is a result of our separation from God and caused by sin. In other words, every sickness that's out there is a result of sin being in the world. We are going to get sick, we are going to eventually die. Why, because sin has infected the world. I've used this example before, you go into a small room and one person has a cold and there's five people in there, chances are pretty good the other four are gonna have a cold. Why, not because they did anything but because they were in a room filled with sickness. We live in a world full of sickness, so it's going to come. But in either case, Jesus needs to point out the root cause of all problem, whether it's your direct sin or it's just because sin is in the world. That's why we're sick. Sin needs to be first forgiven because we are afflicted with a sickness caused by sin in the world. The second thing that Jesus does is he makes this statement in a manner that everyone can hear it. Notice he doesn't call the guy aside. Hey, come here. I don't want anybody else to hear it, but dude, you're, you're sinful. I'm gonna forgive you of your sin. He says it point blank out there so everybody hears it. And he wasn't worried about what others would think about his statement. And I think that was kind of a shot across the bow for the Pharisees. Sort of, okay, here we go. All right, I'm gonna make this statement. Pharisees, are you listening? Let's get ready to rumble. And he says it. Verse six says, but some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there said to themselves, what? This is blasphemy. Who can forgive, who but God can forgive sins? So basically, fight's on. Here we go. Notice that, notice that the Bible says the place was packed. If it's packed, we assume that the teachers got there early to get a seat to hear what Jesus was gonna say. They knew he was coming and they knew it was gonna be a problem. They wanted to trap him and hoping he would say something that would get him in trouble. He was so popular and he couldn't really ignore them anymore. Now these guys, they, according to the law, they had, they had the ability and their, their responsibility to check out people who were preaching and teaching. But instead of coming with an open heart and an open mind, they already came predisposed against him. Now, I have this issue sometimes. If, I, if I'm listening to someone on the radio, a preacher or whatever, and if I know something about them, I'm kind of waiting to hear something that I don't agree with. 
ready to judge them, you know, instantly. But if I don't know the person, I'm open to whatever they tell me. I'm, I'm, I want to learn. I want to grow. I want to become more mature. These guys came in not with an open heart, but with a closed heart. They already were judging him before he did anything. And they just really, just come on, give me some evidence so I can say everything I'm already thinking, already feeling. Remember what our quote was from the, our second week. It says, the scribes spoke from authority and Jesus spoke with authority. The scribes were always quoting this rabbi or that rabbi. Jesus was basically lose, was quoting himself. And what happened was that these leaders were now losing their power base. They were ceasing to be influential. So these teachers now try and come and see what he's teaching and hoping to trap him by something he says. Now Jesus could have not done anything, but Jesus was confrontational and he gives them exactly what they want to hear. Now in the Old Testament law, the Pharisees would be correct because nobody but God can forgive sin. And this statement in itself would be blasphemy. However, in Jewish teaching, and even in Jewish teaching, their Messiah could not forgive sin, only God can forgive sin. That's what they thought. Their failing was not knowing who the Messiah was going to be. And thereby not, they really don't know their Old Testament. If they'd have really studied their Old Testament and knew it, they, knew, they would have known exactly who the Messiah was going to be and what his ability would be. Now, looking back in Matthew, when Jesus was trying to be trapped again, he gives this reply, which is applicable to this group as well. And I think this is something that we all need to know. Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine says, Jesus replied, your problem is that you do not know the scripture and you don't know the power of God. Wow. That one sentence phrase sums up every cult, every false religion. Because they don't know the scripture. They don't know God's word. Every cult, every false religion that uses the Bible uses it out of context. They don't understand it. They, don't, they misinterpret it. They apply it to themselves. They take one verse out of context. They don't know their Bible. And the problem is not only the people that are leading it don't know that, it's the people that are following it don't know it. I remember a buddy of mine was, uh, he came out of a Catholic church and he was, he went to his priest once and said, look, I, I, wanna, I wanna read, I wanna understand the Bible. And what he was told was this, you don't need to understand it. I'm here to give it my interpretation to you. So incorrect. And that's exactly what happens with false cults and religions. People don't study it for themselves. They take what is said from the front as truth without ever examining it. And that's exactly what the, that Jesus was blasting the Pharisees about because he says, you don't know it. You don't know it. And the Bible says those who teach we judged more harsh because we have influence, but does not let you off the hook. You will be judged for not taking time to read it yourself. If I lead you astray and you let me do it, you're equally responsible for that. Because in this country, Bible's everywhere. No one can complain about getting it. You can't have a Bible. Everyone should have it. Mark 2 verse 8 says, 
Jesus knew what they were discussing among themselves. So he said to them, why do you think this is blasphemy? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or get up, pick up your mat, and walk. I will prove that I, the Son of Man, have the the authority on earth to forgive sin. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, take your mat, and go home, because you are healed. Now, the Pharisees, as far as we know, were thinking this to themselves. It was not something they verbalized. But Jesus knew their thoughts. And since he couldn't hear their conversation, he just told them what they were thinking. Point one of knowing he's God. I can read your mind. And knowing that the Pharisees are wanting to, quote, reason reason this out. That was their thing. Let's reason this out. Jesus asked them the next question. You want to reason this out? What's easier? Just saying those phrases is easy. You can say the words. I can say your sins are forgiven. I can say pick up your mat and walk. Equally easy to say in the English language or in the Greek language. But to let you know that I have the authority that comes back from those sentences, I'm going to heal this guy. Saying you're forgiven is easy. And since you really can't prove it, you know, if I say up, your sins are forgiven, how do you prove that? Jesus says, well, to show you that that sentence has the authority, I'm going to heal this guy. And notice Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man. The Son of Man is a messianic title, and it was used 14 times in Mark, and is referenced to the Messiah in the book of Daniel. Daniel 7:13 says, In my vision at night I looked, and therefore, or there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. The Jewish people, and especially teachers of the law, would understand that that phrase equated himself with God. So they knew it. When he's saying the Son of Man, he's calling himself God. Again, another shot across the bow. Come on, Pharisees, let's, let's rumble. Mark 2.12, the man jumped up, took the mat, and pushed his way through the stunned onlookers. Then they all praised God. We have never seen anything like this before, they exclaimed. So instantly, this guy was healed in front of everyone, and it says everyone, just like before, was amazed or stunned at what God did. And the Bible says they all praised God. Now, it says all, so we assume that the teachers were praising God too. It doesn't say that they were amazed at the miracle. It says they were amazed, or it doesn't say whether they were amazed at the miracle or whether they were amazed at Jesus, because it matters, and there's a difference. If you're amazed at the miracle, it's different than being amazed at Jesus doing the miracle. If we chase miracles only, you will miss the reason for the miracle, to see Jesus. It doesn't say if anyone or anyone got saved, but they all heard the gospel and were now without excuse. Now, more than likely, some folks got saved, but most, including the teachers, probably didn't. But they all heard the gospel. They all heard the truth. And the Bible says we will be held accountable for what we have heard and what we know. Now, I've mentioned this before. This is debatable within Christian circles. I tend to want to believe this one. 
There's a passage in the Bible that says, if you hear the gospel here during this time before the rapture and you reject it, you will not be able to receive it after the rapture. If you're not taken in the rapture, you now won't be saved after the rapture. And the verse that they use is 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 10. Talking about the Antichrist, it says, he will use every kind of wicked deception to fool those who are on their way to destruction. Why? Because they refuse to believe the truth that would save them. That's, you've heard it here. Rapture happens. You didn't believe it now. And it goes on to say, so God will send a great deception among them and they will believe all the lies. So you don't get saved here during this time of grace. Rapture happens, church is gone, Christians are gone. After that, the Bible says God will allow you to believe the lies. You won't believe the truth after that. Verse 12 says, then they will be condemned for not believing the truth and enjoying the evil they do. Now there again, there are two views on that. I tend to want to believe that one. But the bottom line is, if I'm right, you need to get saved now. If I'm wrong, what does it hurt getting saved now? But if it's true, why risk it? The Bible says today's the day of salvation. It doesn't say tomorrow is the day of salvation. And I want to be sure now. Verse 13 goes on and says, Then Jesus went out to the lakeshore again and taught the crowds that gathered around him. Now this is his second time where he's going to be confronted by religious leaders. Jesus is gaining popularity. He's becoming more known. Common people had more problems. They, they want everything from Jesus. So again, another familiar scene, Jesus teaching with a crowd around him. Again, we don't have the transcript of what he preached because remember, Mark is more interested in what Jesus did than what he taught. People want to see miracles, but they want to hear, and they heard the preaching during the miracles. Now, if you look in, at the NIV version of that verse, it says, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. And the phrase, once again, indicates there's going to be another tradition here that Jesus breaks. The first was his authority to forgive sin. This one, he's going to call a tax collector. Verse 14 says, As he walked along, the sun, the sun, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collection booth. Come be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Now, up until now, Jesus had been associating with the outcast of society. We know that. But now he calls a person who's hated by everybody, hated by his own people. I'm sure that the, the guys that are with Jesus were thinking, dude, why are you calling him? He's a tax collector. Now, a tax collector was a Jewish guy who had sided with Rome in the collecting of taxes from his own people. So he was considered a traitor by the Jewish people, not really loved by the Gentiles because he's collecting taxes from everybody. Nobody liked him, except the Romans who was collecting taxes from. Now, we don't know if Levi himself was a crook, but history tells us that most tax collectors were. They would pad their own pockets from what they collected from people. But he was hated because he worked for the enemy, Herod and the Romans. He would have been considered a traitor 
and an extortionist. So the leaders, especially the leaders, would wonder why Jesus is calling them. And the disciples, I'm sure, were thinking to themselves, isn't there anybody else you can pick? Why did it have to be him? Now, Levi, we know, is, is actually Matthew. But if we jump ahead a couple of verses, you're going to see their reaction to that. But look at Levi's reaction. He instantly followed Jesus. He, he abandoned what was profitably, probably a very profitable job for him. He probably had a lot of money. Probably a pretty rich guy. And he already made enemies. So he kind of figured out how the disciples were going to feel about him. And the disciples were Jews who probably hated all tax collectors as well. When you become a Christian, what's going to happen is some of your friends will fall off and some of your friends will be new friends. You can't worry about what people think if you make a decision for Christ. Because I can guarantee you people are going to be opposed to you making that choice. And you have to be ready for that. And you can't let that dissuade you from making that choice. And that could be family members. That could be spouses, that could be parents, that could be kids. If you don't make a choice because you're afraid of offending people, then you're making a mistake. Levi left his great job and he went to a group of people that he thought was probably gonna hate him. He wasn't worried about what people thought. And now since he left his job, the Romans are going to probably hate him because he's not collecting money for them. And they might want revenge on him for leaving that choice job that got them money. So for him, this was a no-win choice. And yet he made it. Levi did not think about anyone's reaction to his choice, which should be our reaction as well. When we choose to follow Jesus, we shouldn't care about anyone's opinions or actions about that choice. I'm reading through 1 Thessalonians now, and that's a book where Paul is encouraging persecuted Christians, really persecuted, severe persecution from both Jews and Gentiles for their choice to follow Jesus. And he's telling them, it's going to come. I know it's happening. Don't be surprised about it, but be of good cheer. God is with you through the trouble and the tribulation. You know, we sing that song, The Goodness of God, and we in America have a lot to be thankful for. God is really good to us. Think about countries where you're not that free. You wonder if that type of song could be sung in a country where they're beheading Christians and torturing Christians. Would they be able to sing that song? If we think about the goodness of God as only what God gives us, then they're not going to be singing that song. But if they're singing it because God saved them, God promised them eternity, God is delivering them from whatever they're in right now, maybe through death, but they know where they're going to be, then yes, they can sing about the goodness of God. If we're only serving Jesus for the miracles and the healings, then we really, really haven't focused on the goodness of God. We should be prepared for what may happen when we make that choice, but not let it change our minds about Jesus. Verse 15 says, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
So not only did it, did it appear that Matthew not wanted to only have dinner with Jesus, he wanted some of his friends to meet Jesus as well. So it wasn't, he wasn't the only tax collector there. Others were coming and probably invited by Matthew or Levi. Matthew's fellow tax collectors and other sinners that Matthew knew who were probably devout Jews that would not be seen with tax collectors, they came. And these are ex the exact people Jesus wants to reach and still does. You see a homeless person on the street, that's who Jesus wants to meet. Jesus, the Bible says he wants everyone to be saved, everyone. And we should have the same attitude. And of course the Pharisees were the first ones to first ones to quickly complain about who Jesus was eating with. It's not like they cared. They didn't care about Jesus. Again, they're trying to find something about Jesus that they could pin on him. And they made it a point not to only ask themselves the question, they asked Jesus' followers. Presumably a trap to, find, to trap Jesus and find a reason to discredit him. In other words, hey dudes, why is he sitting with those tax collectors and sinners? Tell us something we can use against him. They didn't like Jesus, accept him, so why would they care about who he hung out with? They didn't. They wanted to find something to smear his name. Now, two things about that sentence. We need to be careful that our actions don't smear the name of Jesus. When people are outside, it's one thing to... Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners. Nothing wrong with that. The Pharisees were trying to find out something about his lifestyle that could smear him. When people examine our lifestyle, is there something in our life that we would be ashamed to let other people know about that would keep people from Jesus? And the second thing is kind of the opposite. We can't let the world tell us how we're supposed to behave. The Pharisees were trying to get Jesus to behave a certain way. Well, you can't eat with tax collectors. You can't eat with sinners. You should be eating with righteous people. You should be eating with us. We can't let the world tell us how we're supposed to act and behave. I'm sure the Pharisees wanted the disciples to say something or do something that would validate their thoughts. In other words, something that they could smear his name with. And trust me, when people know you're Christians and they're looking at you, they're trying to find something that you did that was wrong to nail you with it. You could do 99 things right, and the one thing you do wrong, they're going to find. Maybe they were thinking like Peter did later by distracting himself or distancing himself from Gentiles when Jewish believers came around. Do we do that? When we're around Christians, we great, we talk Christianese, we talk to each other. When you're out with the world, do you behave like they do? Or do you distance yourself from Jesus? Or do you act the same way you act here with other people? Or maybe they wanted the disciples to fall in line with them and say the same thing about Jesus. In other words, behave like the world. Are we embarrassed by Jesus? Do our beliefs make us embarrassed to speak about them in public? Do we behave in the world like the world tells us 
we should behave. Keep your religion to yourself. Don't bring it out in the public. You keep it in church, that's fine. Don't bring it out in the public. Don't bring it to work. Don't bring it to run us and our families. We don't want. You just keep it to yourself and we'll be fine. Don't try to force your faith on anybody else. Now, we don't force. We don't make anybody. You can't make someone become a Christian. They equate talking about Jesus the same as forcing Jesus on them. We don't behave like that. We don't behave like the world tells us we're supposed to behave. And Jesus ends his statement with this, this profound statement in verse 17. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And the word righteous there actually means self-righteous. Now we know the Pharisees were self-righteous because the Bible tells us that none of us is righteous, right? None of, Romans 3, none of us is righteous. So he's saying to the Pharisees, you guys are self-righteous and there, therefore there's nothing I can do for you. You think you're already okay. I wrote down here and we'll end with this. There are three types of, quote, patients that Jesus cannot heal. Those who don't know about him, those who know about him but refuse to trust him, and there are those who don't admit that they need him. They don't admit that they are sinners. And that last group was the Pharisees. They don't believe they're sinners. They believe they don't need to be forgiven. They've kept all the laws. They've done everything, even the stuff they created along with the Mosaic law. We're doing all this stuff. So we don't need to be forgiven. So are we in any of those groups? Well, it can't be the first one because you've all heard about Jesus. So either we're sinners, but don't trust God, or we don't think we're sinners, and therefore don't need God. I think everyone here knows we're sinners. I think everybody here knows we, in fact, do need God. And aren't you glad that God the Father sent the great physician to cure you of sin? When you go to the doctor and he tells you have, you have a fatal disease, but he has the one thing that will cure you of that disease, how do you feel? Give me the cure right now. And you would do anything for that cure. Well, the Bible tells us we have a fatal disease of sin. Wages of sin is death. You're a sinner without forgiveness. Death is not only physical death, but separation from God. We choose to be apart from God now. God says, okay, I'm going to let you keep that attitude after you die. You don't want me now? You can't have me then. But you're choosing that. Jesus is the cure. And I'm hoping that everybody here got the cure. Would you stand? Would you bow your heads for a moment? When we talk about the goodness of God, we look at our lives and realize how sinful we really were. And going back to the car analogy, the engine, when they take an old engine apart, it's full of rust and corrosion and gunk and oil. And they have to clean that up in order for it to work right. 
If they don't clean it up, it's never going to run right. When you become a Christian, God cleans all that junk out of your life. If you try to be a Christian and still live the way you used to live, it's never going to work. It's never going to work the way God wants you to work. The Bible says when we are saved initially, he wipes that slate clean. And now we have the opportunity to maintain that engine, change the oil, treat it well. But if we don't, and we abuse it, we never change the oil, use terrible gas, your engine's not going to last very long. When you become a Christian, that God gives you the gas of his word. And he gives you the oil of the Holy Spirit. And if you keep putting in great gas, maintaining your relationship through the Holy Spirit, the oil, your Christian walk will continue for years. But if you don't, it won't last very long. God wants each one of us to be ready, on fire, excited for what God is going to do. You're not going to go to a drag race with a car with 100,000 miles on the engine and expect to win. But you can go with a brand new engine, all tuned up, ready to go. And that's us. We want that newness of engine. Come in this. Full of the Holy Spirit, the oil. The word of God filling our tanks. And then when God, when you say go and the green light hits, man, we are ready for what you want to do. Lord, I pray as we continue to pray and seek your face and deny ourselves wanting to see more of Christ, I pray that you'd fill each one of us continually with the Holy Spirit. We can't live on yesterday's experiences. We can't live on yesterday's oil. We live on today's anointing, today's oil, fresh oil. And let your word continue in our tanks every day, Father. Every day, let your word permeate our hearts so that when you are ready to pour out your spirit upon this church in our lives, we are ready. And I pray for each person here that we realize that, Father, we all have a part in that. We are praying for revival. And we are praying for souls to be saved. We have the same list on that cross that have names on them that we've been praying for for years. Now, some have been taken off, praise God. Some have been saved through those prayers and the power of God. But Father, there's more on that list. There's more healings to take place. There's more salvations to happen. That cross will never be empty of names for salvation. So Father, we want the power of God to hear pour in this place, that you anoint us with the Holy Spirit. You get our hearts and our rights ready, and Father, we are revived in our spirits, and then Father, pour your spirit upon this place. Just flood this place with your Holy Spirit. Let revival break out here, Father. You're breaking it out other places. We want to be ready for what you're doing across this country right now. In these last days, Father, we want salvations. We want people saved. We want people delivered from their sicknesses and sin. And we want the power of God to be unleashed here so that when you return, the rapture happens, Father, we have done everything we can do. There's nothing we haven't done that we could have done. We want to make sure that we burn out before the rapture happens and that people come to know you because of it. So, Father, I pray that each one of us, our hearts and our spirits will be attuned to that. And in our personal lives, Father, we would be just excited for what you're going to do, anticipating the move of God. And we want to be prayed up, we want to be read up, and we want to be ready for what you're going to do.
Prepare us, Lord, for your revival. My Father, I commit each one of us to that end in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. 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 God bless you. Have a great day. Expect God to move. Amen.